I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com This is We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are Groundworks, Inc. I'm Alice Marcus-Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. Heritage Radio Network broadcasts from two shipping containers in Bushwick, Brooklyn, located next to fabulous Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street. We Dig Plants is produced and engineered by Jack Inslee. And we are continuing our... um, series today on the economic plants of these United States. These United States. Um, So today's show is going to be on tobacco, the bad plant that our economy was founded and built on. One of them, right? (laughs) (laughs) One of the important ones. Yeah. So we have, we have this, this series is comprised of four weeks, um, tobacco, cotton, indigo, and rice. So today, tobacco. Tobacco was known as the staple of the Chesapeake colonies, um, and it was it was really more of a staple than the world has even realized. Um, in 1612, John Rolfe, an Englishman sent with the Virginia Company, found that tobacco would grow very well in Virginia, and it would sell very profitably in England. So this is 1612. This was, of course, wonderful news, considering that many of the Jamestown colonists had died or suffered miserably as their farming efforts had been very unsuccessful. Um, Throughout Virginia and the greater Chesapeake, the potential cash value of tobacco soon captivated the imaginations of the colonists, and they began to plant it in every clearing from fields to to the forts and to the streets of Jamestown, and eventually to much of Tidewater, Virginia. It really dominated the Virginia economy. After 1622, um, tobacco remained the staple of the Chesapeake colonies, um, and its rise is one of the most remarkable aspects and stories in our colonial history. Um, As gold and silver became scarce, and as the use of wampum was terminated because of its complications, the Chesapeake colonies were able to rely on tobacco as a means of currency. Tobacco was the safest and most stable currency that the Chesapeake colonies had or could have, and it always had a valuable exchange for gold. 
So let's just think for a second about the image of tobacco now that we got that little history lesson out of the way. Mm-hmm. The image of tobacco, rebel, independence, right? Frontiersmen. This plant specifically embodies all of these characteristics that are very, very American. Well, the Native Americans were also smoking it too. That helped. Exactly. It was, yeah. it was a medicinal use. Mm-hmm. So Jefferson and Washington, of course, farmed tobacco mm-hmm. as they wrote the Constitution. Mm-hmm. We fought wars of independence over this crop and its value. Mm-hmm. And tobacco truly is the American story. Um, it's a plant that grows natively in North and South America. It's in the same family as the potato, pepper, and poisonous nightshade. It's a very, very deadly plant um, and a lot of aspects. <laughs> yeah. The seed of the tobacco is actually very small. Um, a one-ounce sample contains about 300,000 seeds. And it's believed that tobacco actually began growing in the Americas about 6,000 B.C., 6,000 B.C. That's pretty interesting. You know, um, a lot of people, of those of you who listen, know that I'm from southern Italy. um, And I always find it interesting when I go back home and I see barns with tobacco drying it. And I'm like, what's this stuff doing here? Because I think of it as a quintessential American crop. Right. You know, and I was actually surprised to see. uh, Like process of. Well, like it, it just it grows well and it's a commodity. You know, you can make a lot yeah. of money off and of it. And the climate there is mild, That's, like yeah. the American South, so they exactly. probably did well. And Italians do love to smoke. They, they yeah, eat. yeah. So it's been discovered through anthropology that as early as one thousand or as early as one BC, American Indians began using tobacco in many different ways, um, as you know, for religious purposes and medicinal purposes. Tobacco was believed to be a cure all. And it was used to dress wounds as well as a painkiller. Uh, chewing tobacco was believed to relieve the pain of a toothache. And actually, my great-grandmother used to chew tobacco. And on her, the day that she died, she chewed some tobacco. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not something. <laughs> that's kind of a funny, like, little family ghost story. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, skeleton in the closet sort of thing. Um, uh October 15th, 1492, Christopher Columbus was offered dried tobacco leaves as a gift from the American Indians that he encountered. He gave them a gift as well. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Several gifts. Syphilis blanket, anyone? (laughs) All right, back to tobacco. Okay, sorry. So soon after, sailors, of course, brought the tobacco back to Europe and the plant was being grown all over Europe. The major reason for tobacco's growing popularity in Europe was that it... Um, had these supposed healing properties. So the Europeans believed that tobacco could cure almost anything from bad breath to cancer. Wow. In 1571, a Spanish doctor named Nicholas Minardes wrote a book about the history of medicinal plants of the world. And in this, he claimed that tobacco could cure 36 of the world health problems. Interesting. So um, a little bit about the... Um, kind of Indian use of tobacco. The Mayan Indians in Mexico carved drawings in stone showing tobacco use. So these drawings date back to somewhere between 600 to 900 AD. Tobacco was grown by the American Indians before the Europeans um, came, of course, to North America. So Native Americans smoked tobacco through a pipe for special religious and medicinal purposes. They didn't smoke it every day. It was more 
for specific reasons and religious mm-hmm. services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tobacco was the first crop grown for money in North America. So in 1612, um, the settlers at the first American colony in Jamestown, Virginia, grew this as a cash crop. It was their main source of money. So can you imagine, England probably saw, you know, America's potential as a, as a sure. huge boom, you know, for their economy. Um, during the 1600s, tobacco was so popular that it was frequently, in fact, used as money. Tobacco was literally as good as gold. Um, yeah, Alice, I wanted to add that I this fall, I recently, uh, as recently as this fall, I went to Colonial Williamsburg, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of information about that, and they yeah. had barns, yeah. you know, showing how the tobacco was yeah. uh, how the process, yeah. how it was processed. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, so one yeah. other kind of fun fact, historically, is that in 1632, 12 years after the Mayflower arrived on Plymouth Rock, it was illegal to smoke publicly in Massachusetts. So I find that really, really interesting um, and ironic and full of hypocrisy. (laughs) This had more to do with the moral beliefs of the day than the health concerns about smoking tobacco. Well, there was no smoking, no dancing. Right. Right. No drinking, you know, and other things. Puritanical life. Mm -hmm. But they were making money. Their colony was based on it. Exactly. Exactly. So by the 1800s, many people had begun using small amounts of tobacco. Some chewed it, others smoked it occasionally in a pipe, or they hand-rolled it um, into a cigarette or a cigar. On average, people smoked about 40 cigarettes a year. 40 cigarettes a year? On average, in, That's the, in very, the early 1800s. I wonder if women smoked as much as men, mm. you know, because they I, drank yeah, beer and they, you know. Yeah, I'm sure. The first commercial cigarettes were made in 1865 by Washington Duke on his 300-acre farm in Raleigh, North Carolina. His hand-rolled cigarettes were sold to to the soldiers at the end of the Civil War. So that's very interesting because the military, you know, has this long history of kind of passing out cigarettes. That's how my father began smoking. They gave it up for free. They gave them, yeah. Um, so it wasn't until James Bonsick invented the cigarette-making machine in 1881 that cigarette smoking became widespread. Bonsick's cigarette machine could make 120,000 cigarettes a day. So from, what was it, 40 cigarettes a year in mm-hmm. the early 1800s to, you know, 70 years later, 120,000 cigarettes a day. Could be made from one machine. Right. So think about that from a farming economic standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know? They had to clear a lot more land for this very, exactly. very profitable um So he plant. went into business, of course, with this machine. He went into business with Washington Duke's son, um, and they built a factory and made 10 million cigarettes their first year and about 1 billion cigarettes five years later. Alice, isn't that the Duke of Duke, the Duke family of Duke University? Yes, right? their, it is. Their fortune exactly. is based yep. on tobacco. And they named this company the American Tobacco Company. Um, so this American Tobacco Company was the largest and most powerful tobacco company until the early 1900s. Several companies were making cigarettes by the early 1900s. Um, as as competitors, and I think the most famous one that we all hear so much about is 1902 Philip Morris Company, um, 
comes out with its Marlboro brand, which is all about the frontiersmen, the cowboy, the cowboy, and the renegade, and the you know independent mind. So it, this is very very early in our history. Um, so Philip Morris was selling cigarettes mainly to men. Um, of course, this all changed during World War One um, and World War Two when soldiers were overseas. Um, of course, they were given free cigarettes every day, like we just talked about but women went into the workforce and then they needed to smoke that's too. how women started to smoke and so. i'm a, yeah and i'm i have to say that i'm a casualty of that advertising too i was a smoker mm-hmm. for a number of years i'm really glad that i quit and it was a very hard process mm-hmm. you know it's i like power- to smoke meat instead <laughs> yes i think that that's safer <laughs> So by, so by 1944, cigarette production was up to 300 billion a year. Um, Servicemen received about 75% of all of these cigarettes that were produced. Wow. So the wars were very good for the tobacco industry. Since World War II, there have been six giant cigarette companies in the United States, which are Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds, American Brands, Laura Lard, Brown and Williamson, and Liggett and Mayers, which is now called the Brook Group. So they make millions of dollars selling cigarettes in the United States and all over the world. In 1964, of course, this is like all of our generation, the Surgeon General of the United States um, wrote a report about the dangers of cigarette smoking, and he said that nicotine and tar in cigarettes would cause lung cancer. So, of course, we all know all the controversy, and I, I don't want to focus the show on that. Right. Except I would like to note that um, this kind of declaration by the 1980s, um, the companies had to come out as retaliation kind of with new brands of cigarettes that had lower amounts of tar and nicotine and improved filters. <laughs> <laughs> um so that their customers would keep buying and uh, and feel good about it, and and <laughs> and these companies could keep making money. In fact, the 1980s were called the Tar Wars because tobacco companies competed aggressively to make over 100 low tar and ultra low tar cigarettes. Um, and then in 1984, Congress passed another law called the Comprehensive Smoking Education Act. And it said that cigarette companies every three to four months have to change warning labels on the cigarette packs. So there's actually four different labels for the companies to rotate. And I'm, I'm sure we've all, we all know these. Mm-hmm. Um, so as it becomes more difficult for tobacco companies to sell their products um, in the U.S., they begin to look outside of the U.S., of course. So U.S. tobacco companies are now growing tobacco in Africa, South America, specifically Brazil and Paraguay, um, India, Pakistan, the Philippines, Greece, Thailand, and the Dominican Republic. 50% of the sales of U.S. tobacco companies go to Asian countries, Mm -hmm. such as Thailand and South Korea and Malaysia, the Philippines and Taiwan. So tobacco um, companies are exporting their products, their cigarettes, and their chewing tobacco, to at least 146 countries around the world since they kind of lose their market here in the United States. And of course, Hong Kong and the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, um, Turkey, these are all becoming huge, huge consumers. Um, In 1992, Philip Morris sells 11 billion cigarettes to Russia alone. So 
one of the reasons that tobacco growing is so profitable and, you know, why you're seeing it in Italy, I think, is because the costs are extremely low to produce. Mm-hmm. Um, there are only about 800,000 people working in the tobacco industry, and there are 136,000 tobacco farms in more than 16 states. So that's not a, a lot of 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 farms, farms and, and, and land and yeah, mm-hmm, in production. And people, yeah. Um, for the amount of, of widespread world... And in terms of dollars. Do- yeah. I mean, if you... Now in New York, I think cigarettes are like 10 or $12 a, a pack. pack. Exactly. Which is astounding to I me. I know. So the top producing states, of course, are Kentucky, Georgia, and North Carolina being number one where Duke um, is located. The Duke family. Um, so all of these six U.S. companies are extremely large and they're extremely powerful. They're so strong that not even the medical reports of the health dangers of smoking and all the laws restricting smoking and the pricing um, has been able to weaken them. They're still able to make huge profits by buying up other non-tobacco companies in the United States and by selling and making cigarettes outside the country. For example, Philip Morris bought Miller Beer and Kraft General Foods and RJR Reynolds bought the Nabisco Food Group and the General Entertainment Corporation, which produces a lot of the movies that we watch. Can I just add a, a sort of personal anecdotal yeah. note about this? My 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 mother-in-law, Gail, is very vehemently anti-smoking. Mm-hmm. And she produced, she's an artist, and she produced this amazing um, piece of artwork called I chart for hearing impaired smokers because, you know, she grew up in the 50s and 60s when, you know, there weren't all these protections and people could smoke anywhere they wanted to, you know. So she she made this beautiful it's like a giant eye chart and it says no smoking and it looks just like an eye chart, except instead of having these random letters, it has no smoking repeatedly starting Uh large and then getting smaller. She offered to put it in one of the one of the, um, the hospitals that deals with like you know lung cancer and diseases and stuff somewhere in the Midwest. Do you know that the hospital would not allow her to install this artwork? And I thought to myself, probably one of the reasons is that one of the big donors, yeah, you know, or many of the donors, mm-hmm. or you know, belong to these companies exactly because you would think that a hospital would want to discourage smoking. You know, especially one that deals with the, you know, directly with the effects of smoking. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, when <clears throat> my father, unfortunately, um, was diagnosed with lung cancer several years ago, and, and he's doing very, very well on it. He went through um, the treatment program at Sloan Kettering. And in order to, to actually be a patient at Sloan Kettering, he had to sign an affidavit that promised that he would stop smoking. Wow. So that was that was very interesting. On the other hand... <clears throat> As we were, you know, waiting for my father to get out of surgery, we were kind of standing in front of uh, Sloan having some coffee. And there were other cancer patients out there smoking, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Different kinds of cancer patients. But it was astonishing to me. Um, So, of course, the economies of tobacco are, are married to American politics. And we're all very familiar with this government and public health dialogue and uh, everybody has a story um it's what's fascinating is that so many of these mega companies actually own a huge portion of our food system so that's what i wanted to talk a little bit about today here are some statistics from 1991 now these are these are dated so i'm not sure exactly what the ownership 
entails today. But in 1991, Philip Morris owned Bird's Eye, Lewis Kemp Seafood, Jell-O, Lewis Rich Meats, Light and Lively Yogurt, Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid, marketed to kids, <laughs> Crystal Light, Lenders Bagels, uh, Minute Rice. I mean, the list goes on and on. Lowenbrow, Country Time, Lemonade, Log Cabin Syrup, Maxim Coffee, Maxwell House Coffee, uh, Cool Whip. You know, the these- Giorno Pasta? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's really crazy. Um, Briar's Ice Cream. So, and these are all just Philip Morris. So if we go down to the Brook Group, which is formerly uh, Liggett and Myers, they actually own NBA Hoops baseball cards, right? Mm-hmm. They own computer systems titled MAI. They own um, X-Men, DC comic book characters. And Marvel superhero cards. Wow. Right? Disney cards. 1992 Olympic cards. So, you know, this is entertainment. This is food. This is, this is really the fabric of our life is based on tobacco. Uh, Lorillard, another huge company, owns Lowe's Theaters, right? And Lowe's Hotels. Uh, the Regency Hotel here in New York. Um, and again, this is from 1991, so I'm not quite sure about the holdings, you know, as of today's date, <clears throat> 2011. Um, but it is really, really fascinating. So one of my favorite movies that talks a lot about this whole industry is called Thank You for Smoking. <laughs> I don't know if anybody of you of any any of you have seen it. It's by Jason Reitman and Christopher Buckley, who's actually the son of, of Bill Buckley. And it's an amazing satirical comedy about lobbyists in the tobacco industry. Thank you for smoking. I really, really think everybody should see this. But all this social, political, and historical aside, tobacco still is a plant. And it's actually a quite handsome plant as a botanical specimen. So when we come back, we'll talk about tobacco as an ornamental plant, the good of the bad. Stay tuned. We dig plants. to We Dig Plants, Heritage Radio Network. Today we're talking about tobacco. And that song that you were just listening to is called The Wibs Tobacco Reel. Very it's nice. actually off Very of a nice. compilation um, about Lewis and Clark. So, interesting. A little, little American history. All right, let's talk about the plant tobacco. Yes, we talked about its economy. And its and history. Economic, and its history. Yeah. Let's talk about Nicotiana. Nicotiana is the genus of herbs and shrubs of the in, in the uh, nitrate family, the Solanaceae, as Alice had said, and it's indigenous to North and South America and Australia and also Southwest Africa and the South Pacific. There are various Nicotiana species, commonly referred to as tobacco plants, and they're cultivated and grown to produce tobacco. 
tobacco as we know, know it, it for cigarettes. For cigarettes. Yeah. Now, of all the tobacco species, the cultivated tobacco is called Nicotiana tobaccum. And it's the most widely planted and it's grown worldwide for, for its tobacco leaf, for cigarettes and cigars and, and everything. Um, the genus is actually named in honor of Jean Nicot, who in 1561 was the first to present tobacco to the French royal court. The word Nicotiana, um, as I said, came from Nico, and he was the French ambassador to Portugal, um, and he sent it as a medicine to the court of Catherine de' Medici. So those guys were up there smoking first and <laughs> Everybody foremost. Everybody was, yeah. <laughs> they were the first one to try it. Yeah. Um, the smaller plant cultivated and smoked by the Native Americans of the East United States before the arrival of the white men is Nicotiana rustica. So it's a whole other different species. And it and other Nicotianas are used for making insecticides as well as for smoking. And in fact, you can still buy um, Nicotiana in a powdered form to dust onto plants. It's called tobacco yes. dust sometimes. Uh-huh. And it's... Um, as a preventative for um, insects. Yes, mm-hmm. on your plants. And, and, and I don't know if it's considered an organic per se because it's plant derivative, but it is pretty toxic. You do have to be careful when you're... You don't want to get it on your hands. And, and, and yeah. inhale the dust. Yeah. So, But it is a good plant-based um, you know, insecticide. Right. Better than spraying chemicals. Yeah. The insects don't like it. Right. Um, so the third type of Nicotiana is the ornamental type. And it's a beautiful ornamental used in the garden, Nicotiana alata. Or other names, common names are flowering tobacco, jasmine tobacco, etc. I like this tobacco a lot. Yeah, it's really, it? really a lot. But um, bump. Well, we it, we planted a lot. A lot. A lot. Well, you know what's neat about it? You know, um, being time-starved New Yorkers and being in the gardening business that we work like you know 16 18 hours a day we only get to enjoy our gardens at night right so this uh the white flower glows and it blooms at night and we actually get to see it without flashlights so you can see it sort of standing (laughs) proud in the border and it's also fragrant so it attracts um you know its pollinators at night so it's really a great plant um to put in the garden Mm -hmm. you know in the in the perennial border as a as an attractor for moths and for butterflies um there's a lot of different cultivars that they've developed over time but generally they range from about three to four feet high and um the sp- you know you want to give them space because they do get really big i mean and the and the leaves look like a tobacco leaf if you've ever seen a smoking yeah, tobacco it's a leaf big beautiful broad long mm-hmm. leaf sometimes can be kind of kind of have this like fuzzy pelt like mm-hmm. thing on top um yeah it's furry um and they do tend to like sun Mm -hmm. but they will take some uh partial shade you know if you don't have full sun it is important to note that all parts of the plant are poisonous if uh, they are ingested but i think they more than make up for their poison qualities with their amazing flowers they come in pinks and reds and there's one that i really love um, that has a light green flower yeah that's that's a, you talk about glowing at night gorgeous mm-hmm. that's really really nice and we'll post some links to with some photos of a flowering tobacco as well that we I like recommend. it a lot of a lot of <laughs> <laughs> um and it blooms in midsummer or uh, some varieties late summer to early fall and it br- blooms repeatedly which is really nice it doesn't, um, you know, depending on where you are, it could be a perennial or it could be an annual. And depending on what varieties you use um, in the Northeast here, it's an annual. And Alice and I treat it as such. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you have to plant it. But it does sell so really steadily. As Alice was saying, 
um, there's a lot of seeds um, in the seed pod. Yeah. So what I found in my own garden is that I'll find lots of little Nicotiana plants all around because, mm-hmm. you know, when the seeds drop, they go everywhere. They overwinter and next spring they're already... Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> and they and they're very very tough. I mean, they grow. I've seen them growing in the cracks of bricks and like in very very little soil. Um, they have very average water needs. You do want to water regularly, but you don't need to. Wa- you know, it's not like something like a hydrangea that is very you know prone to drying out in the summer. Um, its pH requirements are um, mildly acidic to neutral. It's pretty forgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can propagate it by either dividing up the rhizomes um, or you can take cuttings or you can sow the seeds. In fact, now that it's winter, um, now's a good time to start annual seeds indoors. And mm-hmm. you can certainly um, you know, include uh, Nicotiana in that. Or, you know, if you want to just put it directly, self-sow directly outside, it does very well um, directly in the garden. Um, If you want to collect the seed yourself, um, you just allow the pods to dry out on the plant. You break them open, and then you have to just properly clean them and store them in a a dry, you know, place. Yeah, it's really easy to do, and and it's a very hardy plant to, to keep, you know, for over... You know, to keep through the winter and then sow in the spring. Yeah, it's very easy. It's really cool, and it has a sticky kind of s- yeah. surface to it. It's one That's of why the, the bugs don't like it. Yeah, That's why, so yeah. it doesn't tend to have bug problems. Yeah, well, I actually was doing a little research about um, purchasing tobacco seeds, and I came across this amazing 1940s Camel Cigarette ad featuring David Burpee, which is really amazing because I think most of you know Burpee seed company um and david burpee is plantsman extraordinaire um he started this the seed catalog business in 1876 when he was 18 years old he had a extreme um, passion for plants and animals and his parents lent him a thousand dollars of seed money (laughs) to get started in this business so within 25 years he had developed the largest most progressive seed company in america by 1915 uh, they were mailing a million catalogs a year to America's gardeners. And David Burpee was a huge smoker. So he did this ad for for Camel cigarettes. So um, in addition to, to creating the seed company and being a smoker, he was a gardener, of course. So he grew tobacco in his own garden and his children grew popping corn. <laughs> but but for him, he really liked to develop tobacco um, in, in his perennial beds. So there were 15 varieties to choose from in his catalog. Um, and some of them, some of these varieties produced so large a leaf that a man could hide behind it. And that was the way that he advertised and marketed mm-hmm. some of these plants. <coughs> So some variety names included the General Grant, obviously from the Civil War, Gooch, and White Barley. Um, These were so ornamental that they could be planted in the lawn and shrub borders. (laughs) So So wait, can you imagine today a seed the president of a seed company being in a in a cigarette ad? I know. That just would not ever But it just goes to show how closely tied um, horticulture is to politics mm-hmm. and to our f- formation as a country. So today, of course, Burpee doesn't offer any of these um, these cigarette making tobacco tobaccos. Yeah. They only offer the Alada, um, 
and uh, the, the flowering varieties. So they don't even call the flowering, they don't even call it flowering tobacco no. anymore because of this like stigma. So instead they refer to it as ornamental Nicotiana alata or affinis. Um, so this one plant has caused quite a big stir in the American psyche, you know, from the frontiersman to like the crumbling, fearful man being caught smoking smoking a cigarette you know that's like the pendulum in the airplane how it's in the airplane bathroom yeah, that's like, <laughs> it's like a federal offense yeah now. exactly <laughs> it's important to understand the history and the beauty of this crop towards our uh future and our formation um any other thoughts on tobacco um don't smoke and drive <laughs> <laughs> Friends don't let friends <laughs> smoke and drink. <laughs> but they do let them plant flowering tobacco. Yes. And actually, I've had it in my own garden. And I have children. And he's okay. He's not taking the leaf and smoking it. So do yeah. use it. Yeah. You know? And my pets, you know, uh, my dog doesn't get into it at all. And like, like Carmen said, it is sticky. And people, you know, you do kind of stay away from it. But it is magnificent. It's worth it's worth growing. Yeah. Absolutely. And the fragrance is fabulous. And um, that's our tobacco show. Well, thank you for listening, and thank you to Jack for producing and engineering. And thank you to Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and to our sponsor. If you miss any part of the show, please note it's available via archive on the website, heritageradionetwork.com, and via podcast on iTunes. Please leave comments and or join our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc., We Dig Plants, or visit our website, groundworksgardens.com. Happy gardening! The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Foods USA. In late March, Dan, Andrea, Patrick, and the Heritage team are traveling to the coldest reaches of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont to help the Cantor family tap sugar maple trees. Then the maple sap will flow down to the sugar house where it is boiled gently over a wood fire just as it has been for generations. Just a few days later, this grade A amber syrup will be poured into the beautiful glass jugs and sent to you for pancakes, waffles, desserts, glazing hams, or just drinking by the spoonful. There's only a limited supply, so order today. Each one liter bottle is $45, including delivery. Delivery will be at the end of March, and we will notify you of the exact shipping date. Each shipment will include a CD explaining the whole process. You can also follow us on YouTube while we work and bottle. In the meantime, you can head over to the Heritage Radio Network archives and listen to Linda Palaccio talk about maple syrup on her show, A Taste of the Past, Episode 12. For more information, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join wine impresarios Aaron Fitzpatrick and Brian DeMarco as they dish out on the latest industry news with winemakers and tastemakers on Heritage Radio Network's revamped wine show, Unfiltered. Aaron Fitzpatrick, one of the first hosts on HRN with her program at the root of it, amps up the volume and unfiltered content with co-host Brian DeMarco in this 2011 Redux. True to the original format, Aaron and Brian will keep you abreast of current happenings and break down the news and global events, distilling complex into anecdotal stories that inspire. From media and political events to hailstorms in Argentina, no topic is out of bounds. Tune in every week to hear them chat up the industry's biggest personalities and host on-air tastings with visiting vintners and the country's hottest sommeliers. 
Whether you're an expert or an enthusiast, Unfiltered demystifies wine and lets you know what it really takes to get a bottle from the vineyard to your neighborhood wine shop. Unfiltered broadcasts live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Boltley of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.